It's a matter of being formed as a human being, and that means being formed through uh, in your emotions. Mm. It's learning to hope and love and fear in the right way about the right things. Uh, so uh, Kierkegaard, in a way, recognizes uh, that uh, reflection and knowledge and these things, while all good and important, they aren't they aren't really crucial uh, to uh, becoming a self because you can know a lot and be a louse when it comes to being a human being. <laughs> you can be very smart, very knowledgeable. You can be very objective and detached uh, about a lot of things. But he wants to teach us that we have to be willing to, in a sense, get involved, uh, play a role in our own lives. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. C. Stephen Evans. Dr. C. Stephen Evans is University Professor of Philosophy and Humanities and Director of the Baylor Center for Christian Philosophy and Distinguished Senior Fellow in the Institute for Studies of Religion. He also holds appointments as a professor, professorial fellow at the University of St. Andrews and at the Australian Catholic University. He was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and received his bachelor's degree from Wheaton College in 1969 and his PhD from Yale University in Philosophy in 1974. His most recent books are Why Christianity Still Makes Sense and God and Moral Obligation. And most recently, and it sounds like you even have another book after this, uh, that's coming out soon, but most recently in the one we'll be talking about today, Kierkegaard in Spirituality, Accountability as the Meaning of Human Existence. And so kind of the central question I wanted to ask you about today, uh, Dr. Stephen um, Evans, is uh, why does focusing on the concept of accountability, especially in Kierkegaard, lead us to the good life? So first of all, let me say thank you. And uh, if you could give us just a little bit of your own background into the and give us some insight into what led you to pursue this question, uh, we'd really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank, thanks for that very nice introduction. Can I, can I make one uh, small correction? Uh, sure. I must have sent a, an old old uh, CV or something, but uh, I, uh, I was at Australian Catholic University uh, for six years, but we have uh, sort of parted ways and they've gone their way and I've gone my way, but I'm actually replacing them. I just found out today that uh, I'm going to be getting a similar offer from uh, Notre Dame University of Australia in Sydney. So I'm still going to be going down to Australia, uh, but not, well, congratulations. Not, not to Australian Catholic, but to another a sister institution there in, uh, in Australia. So thanks. So uh, your question again is why did why did I want to focus a book on on Kierkegaard and and the, the idea that we're accountable to God? Well, I've worked on Kierkegaard for a very long time, and uh, it's always been clear to me that for Kierkegaard, human life is to be lived before God, Coram Deo, and that mm. he thought that was just one of the most important things. He says at one point near the end of his life, he says, I've tried to live my life in such a way as to show that God is real. Mm. That he saw his whole life as a kind of, you might say, demonstration of God's reality. Uh, interesting way to think of your life. But um, I, I had been thinking about accountability uh, quite a bit, and Normally in our culture, the term accountability is used in a very negative way. You know, mm. the, when a politician does something terrible or a doctor, you know, abuses a patient, there's a big cry in the press, we got to hold this person accountable. Uh, mm. And and that's often right and appropriate. We do want to hold people accountable when they screw up and, and do bad things. But as a result, we tend to think of being accountable as a negative sort of thing. You know, uh, we, we tend to think of accountability as something we want to avoid, especially if we think of accountability primarily in terms of punishment, in terms right. of like sanctioning someone. But the more I thought about accountability, the more it struck me that partly what we have here when we are punishing people is mm. it's failures of accountability. It isn't really accountability. When people assume accountability, when, when they accept accountability, when they want to live accountably, accountability is not necessarily a negative thing at all. And it struck me that being accountable to other people 
when those people are good people and they have my good, well interests, my best interests at heart, is not a negative thing at all. Uh, right. Because uh, just think about if if I'm not accountable to anyone, then that means no one really cares about how what I'm doing. Or yeah, how yeah. I live my life. Um, so I think it's really. Uh, really important to think about accountability in a more positive vein as a, an ongoing, really a virtue, an excellence that a, a human being could have. People who who are willing to, in a sense, shoulder their responsibilities and when they owe an account to someone for what they've done, and there always has, I think, accountability there. There's sort of two parts of it. Part of mm. it is what we're accountable for doing. People hold us accountable for, you know, my department chair holds me accountable for how I teach or how I publish, how much publishing I do. Uh, mm. But there's also accountability to the, to an individual for what, what we, uh, what we do. And uh, so we have to ask about the standing of a person to whom we are accountable and also the domain of accountability but but when those things are done well, it seemed to me that uh, it's it's a kind of gift to be accountable. Uh, when I'm being accountable to my chair or being accountable to my wife m- makes me better. I'm a better husband because I'm accountable to my wife. I'm a better teacher because I'm accountable to my department chair. Hmm. So if I have the right perspective on accountability, accountability is a gift. And I think for Kierkegaard, that was eminently true for being accountable to God. Right, because Kierkegaard he has a, a view that maybe a lot of Christians wouldn't would like, <laughs> but he thinks that God is completely loving, uh, and God doesn't want to punish anyone. And so, on on his view, what we call God's punishments, we should actually Kierkegaard says we should think of it as medicine, because God doesn't send any so to speak hardships our way except for our good. God is never, so to speak, getting even or trying to pay us back for the bad stuff we've done to him as if we could harm him or hurt him. Uh, so mm. God is totally good. He's totally loving. And Kierkegaard says, if we really understood God and understood ourselves, even what we might call God's discipline, we would welcome because we mm. would see that it was intended uh, for our good. So that that struck me as a, a a new an angle on Kierkegaard that not many people had uh, really looked at, and uh, and so I decided to fo- focus the book on 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 that. Well, and that makes total sense. Uh, even there's kind of a parallel phrase running by here. You said uh, if you're doing something that someone is not holding you accountable for, um, you know, the the phrase that left to my mind when you're talking about that is. If you're not accountable for what you're doing, it's meaningless, which kind of fits that subtitle to your work, right? That like yeah. accountability is the meaning, like meaningfulness comes from accountability, it, that there, it, there is uh, consequences to what you're doing. If there are no consequences, it is in fact meaningless. It, it, there are consequences for what we do, and there are also people who care about us and those consequences. And right. all of that makes life m- richer and more meaningful. Mm. So um, there, there's actually, there's, a, there's an old golf joke that I love uh, about a, a dutiful pastor who's been preaching faithfully every, every Sunday for years and years and years. And one Sunday he gets up and the weather is gorgeous. And he just says, I don't want to go in this Sunday morning and preach. I want to play golf. So he calls the church and lies and says he's sick. He goes to the golf course. First hole, he gets a birdie. Second hole, he gets a birdie. Third hole, he gets a hole in one. <laughs> And an angel is watching and says to God, why are you letting this guy get away with this? He's having this fantastic <laughs> round and he's lied and he's shirking his duty. Yeah. And God, God turns to the angel and says, who's he going to tell? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. We don't have I mean, it, to tell. <laughs> Our achievements don't mean as much when we can't, uh, in a sense, share them with somebody who cares. And that's what accountability, I think, is in part about. Someone who should care about you and and uh, help help you in your in, in whatever projects you're involved in. Yeah, this story will get me in trouble, but I have to share it just because of, of the nature of that joke. Uh, so my parents, uh, we actually live in a multi-generational house, and my dad has gotten one hole-in-one in his entire life, which, you know, not uncommon, right? Yeah. Uh, he's golfing with my mother. They're on a par three, 
and they're out at like the ninth hole. Uh, no, no, like the fourth or fifth hole. So they're as far out as you can get. And she has to go to the bathroom and she goes out in the woods. And my dad, while he's waiting, hits and he gets a hole in one while she's going to the bathroom and he's celebrating. <laughs> so she didn't see it. <laughs> she didn't see it. He's like, honey, you won't believe it. She's like, I'm a little busy right now. Fortunately, there was a guy at the other tee box to confirm it. Because otherwise, like, yeah. I mean, yeah. I- <laughs> Right, you gotta have a witness. Yeah, you have to have a witness. Yeah, I and have so, only one hole in one as well. But yeah, I, I I did have witnesses. So yes, it's it, it's important, right? And I think that's really, I mean, that comes up in your in your work as well. Um, one one other thing, and you, you've mentioned a little bit about shouldering responsibility. Um, there's a cluster of words here that are similar, uh, in meaning, and I'm curious if you see any differences or you're comfortable with substituting them. Uh, are there differences between authority, responsibility, and accountability? Um, is there value in substituting those in particular places? Yeah. Well, I use the word authority as a uh, a type of what I call standing. So okay. whenever whenever someone, you might say, has rightful expectations of me, they ex- they can rightfully expect something from me. I mm. say that person has standing, and there's all kinds of standings. Uh, uh, my students have standing. Uh, they don't yeah. have authority over me, but they have standing. They can, uh, they can, they can ask me, "Why do you teach this course the way you do?" Or, "Why do you assign this book?" Why did you grade my paper the way you did? Right? Yeah. We have a right to ask for an account, and and I have to respect that and be willing to uh, to answer to them uh, mm-hmm. in that way. But I think authority is a special type of standing in okay. which someone has the power to, so to speak, give it a command or an order. Now, my students have standing to ask about why I do things the way I do, but they don't have the authority to say, you're no longer allowed to assign a paper <laughs> or, or, or give tests, right? They have to go to someone with authority with That's that. That's right. Yes. They, they, so authority is, it's a special type of standing in which the person who has the standing can, in a sense, give you a kind of decisive reason to do something by making an order or a command. And often authority is connected up with uh, the power to provide a sanction, mm. you know, of some kind of, you right. know, my, my chair, when I, when I have to report to my chair of the annual report, he, he can give me a rating and that my raise next year would depend on what kind of rating <laughs> I get from <laughs> my chair. Right. So there's the, there's the possibility of a sanction because he has uh, authority. So standing and authority are connected. Standing uh, authority is a type of standing, but it's a special type of standing. Hmm. And I think it's important to see that accountability is much broader than just authority relationships. Hmm. You can have uh, accountability in say uh, a 12 step group where there's mutual accountability Friends can hold each other accountable. Uh, you can have accountability in a in an egalitarian marriage uh, without any kind of hierarchy or, you know, authority in, in that uh, in that sense. So I uh, I think uh, it's important to see that uh, accountability is not linked only to authority, but also to broader broader kinds of standing that we have uh, vis-a-vis each other. Now. Um, and also, you were asking about other. What were the other terms you wanted to to talk about the, besides? They, I said authority and responsibility and uh, responsibility seems to fit in a lot of use cases for accountability. I I understand that authority has some very, like I could understand the distinction right away. I was curious if responsibility have any distinction. Well, I think responsibility and accountability can be used uh, in in very similar ways and even identical ways. For example, a philosopher who died a couple years ago, Ronald Dworkin, uh, he has an interesting book called Religion Without God. You've probably heard of him. and, and I've heard of him. I haven't it. heard of the book. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, he, he uses, he says that all of us human beings, uh, one of the features of someone who lives well is that they live in this responsible way. And he uses the term responsibility in very similar ways to the way I use the term accountability. Mm. But the reason that I, when I started working on this, I chose accountability rather than responsibility, is that we often say that a person is responsible and we mean it's a very individual quality. Like, I'm a very responsible person. I take my duties seriously, so on. Yeah. Well, I wanted to emphasize the interpersonal character that we not we don't just have accountability for, which would be, like you might say, responsibility for doing something, 
but we are responsible to someone or accountable to someone. And I thought that the, the word accountability had a little more of that interpersonal flavor. Yeah. This, this sort of virtue that I talk about, accountability, there's a whole family of what I call relational virtues, virtues that mm. get exercised in interpersonal relationships, like gratitude, uh, forgivingness, uh, a willingness to forgive. Those are, are, are virtues, I think. Uh, they've, they've been studied, and but they yeah. are virtues that, so to speak, presuppose relationships and accountabilities yes. like that. It presupposes a relationship. So uh, so that's the that's the, the heart and soul of the matter. So I think responsibility is close, but I wanted I, I really wanted to emphasize, I, I think it's so important. Our culture is so focused on, in individualism. I mean, we're we're all about about the individual, right? And and, and uh, a lot of what we think about, even philosophers, when they write about ethics, it's all about autonomy. Yeah. You know, uh, when I'm doing what's right, it's because I see that it's right, and I'm doing it because it's right. And it's all you know. Manual Kant says ethics starts with autonomy. But it seems to me that uh, ethics is all. I I believe in autonomy in this sense. I mean, I think we 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 all do have to sort of be take accountability and seriously and individually as, but we also, I think, need to recognize that it's not all about me and that one of the things that I can do and I can do it autonomously is recognize the rightful standing and claims that other people have mm. over against me and be willing to, I mean, this goes back all the way to the ancients, but, uh, it's really a species of justice, giving giving people mm. what they're due. Uh, you know, that's an old old definition of justice. It goes right. back to the Greeks, and uh, and I think accountability is a, is a perhaps an aspect of what we might call justice, understood as a personal virtue rather than simply say a, a, a social system. We talk about a just society, but Plato and Aristotle talk about people as being just. Right, and uh, and I think that uh, accountability is is one aspect of that justice as a personal quality. Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting note there um, that what we owe to somebody is part of being just. Um, but Plato's problem with that, and I think rightfully so, is if someone gives you a weapon, for instance, and then asks for it back, but they're not in their right mind. Right, you can't. You don't give it back to them. That would not be just, even yeah, though it is need, owed to them. You need but practical wisdom as well as justice. Right. <laughs> but what's interesting about what you're talking about is that in relation to God, we never have that problem. Like God is never out of his out of his mind, right? right. We never have, like, yeah. because we're relating to an absolute, even in the case of someone like Abraham, and um, spoiler alert for the audience, I... Kierkegaard, uh, Kierkegaard has been uh, very influential in my own life. My second son's name is uh, Soren, actually. Uh, <laughs> my poor wife is very patient with me. But <laughs> uh, but I, as I look at that, um, just that idea that uh, when you look at Abraham, even in terms of what most people at the time would have said is ridiculous, sacrificing your son, uh, it, it was something that... Uh, was proper in relation because he was speaking and dealing with God. That's a that's a, of course a, a, a tough uh, a issue to. Oops, I almost lost you there. Okay, <laughs> I, I was trying to uh, get rid of get rid of my uh, background noises. I was getting some uh, emails coming in and they were dinging. So no I just, worries. I just closed my email program, but I think that uh, in in many situations. Um, God, as God really is, would never ask you to do something bad or evil. Uh, but of course, there are people who have crazy ideas about God. God may not be crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but there are people out there who think God is asking them to do very bizarre and crazy uh, and even evil things. So uh, there, there, there are a whole host of problems. I think... Uh, when Kierkegaard writes his book *Fear and Trembling* about the 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 case of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, he puts it in the context that Abraham has faith, and as a person of, of faith, 
He believes that mm. God is good. And so the question is, if you really think you know God and you think God is good, and you're sure that God has asked you to do something, then Kierkegaard thinks you ought to do it. But that doesn't, of course, mean that if my next door neighbor says, hey, I'm going to sacrifice my kid, I'm not going to call 911. Right, right. I think uh, I think the God that I come to know, uh, I actually think one of the things that was going on in that uh, story in Genesis is that God mm. was teaching ancient Israel that unlike some of the tribes around them, he would not require child sacrifice. Right. Not not uncommon in the ancient world for gods yeah. to demand that. And I think uh, Yahweh was in effect saying, look, I know you're devoted to me and you'd be willing to do whatever I ask, but I don't ask this. This is not something mm. that, uh, and later that becomes explicit in the in some of the prophets who say child sacrifice is just anathema to God. Yeah. I think uh, if somebody comes to me and says, God asked me to do that, I would say, not the God I know. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. And I think, um, you know, and there is that interesting epistemological problem um, where one, there is the kind of objective truth that our culture know, like knows to be true. And sometimes it's not always true. And it takes yeah. an individual who knows that they're right to go against common wisdom. But the uh, <laughs> opposite side of that is the person who thinks they're right and they're just crazy, right? And the, the distinguishing line is very difficult there. I rem uh, Probably not the best reference to make, but I remember uh, Woody Allen making a joke about how, how did Abraham know, right? Coming from his Jewish background. He's like, well, it, it had that particular pitch and timber that only God's voice can have, which of course <laughs> is a joke. Like, yeah, like, yeah it's right. like, well, it sounds like God. And like, what does that mean? And it's a difficult question. And um, it's one of those things that where if we hold ourselves to the truth and to accountability, um, man, it, it's, it leaves us at an interesting points where we, we do feel that need to yeah. critique what, what is around us, right? We can't just always go with the prevailing wisdom, but uh, it, we can lead us into dangerous dangerous uh surely and and I situations think, i think Kierkegaard's fear and trembling is very often misunderstood because mm. we do tend to get focused on the epistemological question here we sort of like say well if somebody says god told him to do x how do they know it was god right how do they know because we're you know we are modern people and we're all into epistemology. We're all interested in how do we know things and what's our evidence and what are our reasons. But interestingly, in the book that Kierkegaard writes about this, he never once says anything about how Abraham knew it was God. Right. He just builds that into the frame of the story. God spoke yeah. to Abraham. Abraham knows it's God. And then a different question arises. Suppose you did know, really know it was God, and God asked you to do something really hard. Would you do it? And, uh, and I think the real target of the book is, is this. Kierkegaard is writing the book to professed Christians in Christendom right. who say God has spoken to them, not necessarily in the middle of the night, in their bedroom, but through the New Testament, through Jesus of Nazareth. And, and God has told them to do things like love your enemies <laughs> yeah. and, and be willing to uh, give, give your money away. And mm. uh, and identify with the poor and the oppressed, and and Kierkegaard is in effect saying, uh, if you really live like that, people are going to think you're nuts. Would you be <laughs> Would you be willing to do that if God told you to do it, uh, even at the cost of people thinking you were maybe a, a little odd or something? Uh, and uh, and th and that's the bite uh, because then you are in a sense being like Abraham. You are saying, I'm going to trust God even though God is telling me to do something that my, uh, my uh, peers would say, that's, that's nuts. You don't, you don't give your money away and, and you don't love your enemies. You're supposed to do what, uh, uh, <laughs> one of her books, Renee Brown says, you know, you know who she is, the Texan. No, she, not familiar. She's a kind of theologian. She's a, she's an Episcopalian, but she writes really great books. And she says, the way I was raised in Texas we're supposed to do it unto them before they do it under you. <laughs> <laughs> or at least as soon as they do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of common sense. And, and Kierkegaard is, he's responding of course to Hegel, 
who thought mm. that our moral life was basically a matter of recognizing the uh, the uh, wisdom that's embodied in our culture. Mm. And Kierkegaard thought that's just deifying culture. You're making culture into your God. And if God says you to do something that your culture doesn't go along with, you, you, you'll never do it. So, uh, so I think Fear and Trembling is a great book, but it's a very misunderstood book. Uh, I'll just recommend yeah. if anybody among your listeners wants to, uh, to read Fear and Trembling, I highly recommend the Cambridge University Press edition, which is translated by Sylvia Walsh. Uh, mm. It's really a, a great translation, and I have a, a, a long introduction to that edition as well that I think really helps see what helps people understand what's going on in the book because it's a book that on the surface is so easy and fun to read, and and everybody likes to read it, but I think at a deep level it's a really hard and difficult book to understand. Yeah, and that's something I appreciate about uh, Kierkegaard himself, and I appreciate uh, about your emphasis, even in accountability, is that um, there are pro- the, obviously you, you spend a good deal of your book dealing with how problematic uh, Kierkegaard's uh, end attacks on Christendom are. But before that, uh, there is this um, real critique. And this challenge, and, and I always appreciate philosophy that challenges me, um, and that challenges me to be a better person. And it's this idea that, uh, isn't it amazing how we can rationalize our own comfort? And if you look at your life, and if every decision leads to your comfort, uh, you know, whether as a human being or as a Christian, yeah. Perhaps you have perhaps your rationalizations are really self-deception. Because if you're not willing to make the sacrifices you are called to, uh then you're really not participating in the the ethical good. Yeah, Kier- Kierkegaard is really looking at his culture and he says these are people who say they're followers of Christ that they would be willing to do anything, to give up anything for the sake of Christ, but they've never given up anything. <laughs> And, and okay, maybe maybe God doesn't ask you to give up everything, but you could start by giving up something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that's that's really a powerful. I I do uh, I do I, I I'm saddened by the fact that at the very very end of his life, mm. I think Kierkegaard was lonely and ill. He'd been uh, kind of isolated from people, and he was I think already suffering from the illness that would kill him at a very right. young age. And I think he he sort of does, he becomes misogynistic. He says bad things about women. He becomes somewhat misanthropic. Uh, uh, but I don't think that's the real Kierkegaard that you get in his main writings. Those are just some things he says in the journals near the very end. And, and also a couple of books, one of which he never even published because I think he had second thoughts about them too. But the way hmm. I would put it is what's right in Kierkegaard is he says, if you're really going to be a follower of Christ, you have to be someone who's willing to suffer with Christ. And and that that means that, uh, you know, if your society or your friends or whatever, you've, you've got to be willing to, to do that. But then at the very end, he slides over from a willingness to suffer if called upon to sort of embracing suffering as a good in and of itself. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of saddened on, on his very near his death. He was talking to one of his friends and he says, God's purpose is to uh, sort of make us so miserable that we'll be glad to leave this life and become angels. Hmm. Well, that, that, that just strikes me as a, a the wrong view of God and the wrong view of, of uh, what God's redemption. God doesn't want to kill our humanness. He wants to redeem it and restore it and make it all that it could be. And that does require, Kierkegaard rightly says, the willingness to deny ourselves. Yeah. But it should not pass over into masochism. Right. Uh, or a kind of uh, uh, embrace of, or uh, anyway, I, at the very end of Kierkegaard, there's some stuff that I I, I don't care for. Uh, but yeah. uh, it's... Uh, you know, people use that stuff too. There are people who want to look at the end and say, see, this is where he was headed all along. And they right. use that as an excuse to write off his earlier writings. Yes. And I think that's a big mistake. Yeah, which is the majority of his writings, right? Like, I mean, oh, you're yeah. talking about a very small uh, subsection at the end. Right. Uh, and that's yeah. a, uh, and you've already touched on this, but if you could elaborate a little bit, you spend a lot of time in your book defending uh, Kierkegaard's legacy. 
why is that important? Why is his legacy so important uh, for the church and even for the culture at large? Well, I think Kierkegaard has uh, a lot to say to a lot of different people. You know, one of the things that I find really interesting about Kierkegaard is that although he is a, a deeply Christian, almost stridently Christian writer, somehow he always manages to appeal to a lot of non-Christians uh, as right. well. I mean, for example, Kierkegaard is very popular in Japan, which is far from being a Christian country. I did not know that. That was uh, not he, where I thought you were going. That's interesting. He was translated into Japanese before he was translated into English. And they, <laughs> there were there were rival Japanese Kierkegaard societies by the time of like 1915. And people <laughs> in North America had never even heard of Kierkegaard. Uh, and, and of course, he influenced deeply writers like Camus and Sartre and Heidegger, right. who were very not, not Christian uh, at all. Very not Christian, yes. Yeah. So, but you might ask, well, why, why does he have a lot to say? And I think it's because he takes the human condition so seriously and writes about mm. it in such honesty that even people who don't like his Christian faith, don't like his understanding of what you might say the answer is to the human problem, they love the way he puts the problem. And they, they love the way he grasps the fact that becoming a human being, becoming a person, becoming a real self is not simply a matter of knowing a lot of stuff, that it's a matter of being formed as a human being. And that means being formed through uh, in your emotions. Mm. It's learning to hope and love and fear in the right way about the right things. Uh, so uh, Kierkegaard, in a way, recognizes... Uh, that uh, reflection and knowledge and these things, while all good and important, they aren't they aren't really crucial uh, to uh, becoming a self because you can know a lot and be a louse when it comes to being a human <laughs> being. You can be very smart, very knowledgeable. You can be very objective and detached uh, about a lot of things. But he wants to teach us that we have to be willing to, in a sense, get involved. Uh, play a role in our own lives. Uh, this mm. is what he calls becoming subjective and uh, caring about the kind of life I live in a deep and passionate way. And uh, so that that's a that's part of the story, that Kierkegaard has something to say about what it means to be a human being that even non-Christians... Uh, but I think he also has a lot to say to, to the church and to Christians, particularly mm. uh, in this theme that even if you are born to Christian parents, you don't become a Christian automatically just by growing up in a particular culture or family. Uh, Christianity always represents a kind of appropriation that's personal and individual uh, on, on your part. And, and that, that's, uh, that requires this sort of uh, subjectivity, emotion, uh, we think of emotions as just feelings, you know, that come mm. and go. Kierkegaard thinks that a disciplined life is one shaped by what he calls passions. And passions are something like emotions that you acquire and develop and that give shape to your life as a whole. Mm. So every everybody can anybody can fall in love, but very few people really know what it means to love over many, many years. Right. Who uh, who have love as a passion that really shapes their life. So for him, becoming a Christian is a matter of acquiring passions, uh, love and hope and faith. And we don't think enough about these uh, qualities and what they mean. We're all about beliefs uh, and getting our doctrines right. Well, uh, Kierkegaard thinks doctrines are important, too, but uh, he thinks that you can have all the right doctrines in your head and you could be uh, you could you could be a, a, an expert theologian. And uh, and be spiritually a dunce. <laughs> you, yeah. You could be a, a an in, infantile in your in your spirituality. So, so that's uh, that's a really important part of the of the book. So, uh, and especially in our in our his message that we mustn't identify Christianity with any cultural manifestation of it is so important because we have now so-called Christian nationalism. Well, that's a Right. That's a heresy, in my view. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Kierkegaard would say it's just an extreme version of Christendom in which you simply right. identify being a Christian and think that I'm a great Christian because I'm a citizen of 
you know, the United States or if you're some other country. The other. So sure. uh, he thinks it's always important if we're really Christians and Christ followers that we can be citizens and, and loyal, but, but there's always a, a sense in which our first loyalty is always going to be to something higher, and we must keep our critical distance from the, from the you might say, the cultural gods <laughs> that, mm. that shape us. And I think a lot of conservative Christians have forgotten that uh, yeah. in, in our current situation. So here yeah, we're more to... relevant than ever. Yes, and I, I definitely, uh, as I was reading uh, your book, I definitely felt the, the how easily the, his critique of Christendom translated to uh, contemporary American culture. So, yeah, I, I, I highly recommend the book uh, for any Christians who are, who are yeah. interested in that kind of critique or non-Christians who are interested in that kind of critique. Um, which kind of leads me to my, my next question, because uh, you dwell at length on the Socratic spirituality. Do you yeah. see a possible common ground approach uh, with or through Socratic spirituality? Perhaps even a, a even a hint at universalism in Kierkegaard, where he's talking about, um, you know, what like I, I think of uh, Dante's Inferno, where uh, the great um, figures of the past are in uh, in uh, not purgatory limbo because they they have achieved some semblance of spirituality well i i think Kierkegaard is always very cautious uh about making judgments about so to speak who is finally going to be in the kingdom of god and who isn't mm. uh, and uh, for example uh he uh, i think he believes uh, firmly that in the end uh anyone who comes to god will will be helped there through the grace of god and through uh, uh, the redemption that Christ offered in his life and death and resurrection. But I think he's quite open to people who in this life don't find that somehow making a connection. In in one of his books, he's actually talking about Europe, and, and he says, you know, we what we need today is Socrates, Socrates, Socrates. Mm. And he says, I well know that Socrates was not a Christian. And then he has in parens, though I'm convinced he has long since become one. <laughs> right, right. So, so I think he's open to what we might call post-mortem evangelism. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, as, as was C.S. Lewis, you know, in, his, uh, right. in some of his writings. So he's not alone in that thought. But uh, I, I think... Uh, Anyway, uh, Kierkegaard says the right thing to do is to be concerned about yourself mm. and not be making judgments about where other people will be spending eternity, uh, but to be uh, to be committed to to becoming a, a friend of God and a follower of God, to to becoming the person God wants you to be. Uh, so, do, would you say? Um... Uh, if I, I just trying to clarify and follow what you're saying, uh, that he finds a lot of value. Obviously, he finds value in what Socrates did, and what he, you know, obviously he wants Soc like more of like the Socratic uh, yeah. method, and he sees that kind of as a method uh, and as a model. Uh, even as we as um, as Christians, I, I consider myself a devout Christian, dealing with other people, recognizing and uh, affirming that kind of uh spirituality in uh people who have not experienced that personal relationship yeah. with christ but they have that relation of the spirit you know you talk quite a bit about how spirit is a relation uh of oneself in process to this absolute uh is that something that we can use to bridge gaps in our culture i i think so i think there's there's common ground in that we can uh we can with people who are, you might say, really focused on the question of what does it mean to exist as a human being? How do I become the person I was meant to be? Those people can always have conversations and dialogue. Hmm. And Kierkegaard thinks someone who is seriously focused on those questions can still have a life that matters, a yeah. life that has meaning, even if, in his view, they haven't arrived at the end of their journey yet. They haven't made it all the way. And... Uh, so uh, in, in his book, Concluding on Scientific Postscript, he has this concept, what he calls religiousness A, which is a kind of natural religiosity, which doesn't presuppose 
knowing anything about the the Bible or the incarnation or anything like that. It's just a sort of an understanding of God that's possible to us, just given our natural uh, capacities that God has given us. And he even tries to exemplify the spirituality, I think, of religiousness, A, in his early so-called uh, upbuilding discourses or edifying discourses. There are 18 of these. They're written fairly early in his career. And it's very interesting when you uh, when you read them, you'll see that although he sticks Bible verses on them, he never uses what I would call distinctively Christian concepts. He never talks about the incarnation. He never talks about the atonement. He never talks about, it's all about how can I acquire a richer sense of God and what God means to me and I, how do I live my life? And he deals with things like how, how should I deal with disappointment in my life? How should I deal with suffering? Uh, and it's all common ground. There's no, uh, there's mm. no uh, attempt to presuppose anything like Christianity. But why does he do that? Partly it's because he thinks that people who even have this sort of religiosity are better off than people who may know a lot of Christian concepts or theology, but who've never actually put them into their lives in a real way. These people are, are who have the Socratic spirituality, as I call it in the book, they are at least striving to exist in a, a really important and meaningful way. And Kierkegaard thinks that's, first of all, valuable in itself. But secondly, he thinks that those are the kinds of people who may be on the road to becoming Christians in the real sense, not just nominal Christians who can parrot the doctrines and feel superior to other people. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, and, uh, but, but he thinks that, uh, that uh, if you don't have, you might say, those kinds of well-formed, well, just use a good example, Christianity teaches that human beings are sinners and that we need redemption. Well, you can sort of understand that as a proposition and spout it back, well, what does it really mean to understand yourself as guilty? Mm. You have to really struggle with your own life and what you've done and think hard about that. And of course, we human beings, instead of struggling with our guilt, we're better off at rationalizing away and making right. excuses, <laughs> right? So uh, Kierkegaard thinks that something like at least the what we might call the moral formation and the emotions that are characteristic of this natural religiousness, they are in a way a prerequisite for even understanding Christian faith, much less becoming a Christian. So uh, they're important in their own right, but they're also important as providing, you might say, the, the precondition for really understanding the gospel in a real way. Yeah, and I think there's something, you know, uh, one one of the th reasons I think Kierkegaard is so popular is because of his emphasis on uh, embodied um, truth, this subjective truth. And uh, I also, I mean, he's just uh, an enjoyable writer, which also helps. He's very um, funny too. Yes. Yeah. Well, and this is the so I want to ask you if you is funny. No, no, this is true. Not everyone is enjoyable to read. Um, so I, I can you tell me a little bit more about uh, the metaphor of, and I've, I've heard different different versions of this. I've not read this in Kierkegaard, but I've heard Kevin Van, uh, Dr. Kevin Van Hooser mention a version, and I've heard you mention a version of kind of the lover sending letters or the king sending letters um, as a way of interpreting scripture and understanding kind of this embodied approach versus this propositional approach. And I, I think in some ways this touches on what you were just talking about, that the person who might not fully understand everything is still embodying the truth more than the person who understands the letters and doesn't follow through. So yeah. can you tell me a little bit more about that metaphor? Yeah, that, that's probably, uh, they're probably thinking about an essay that Kierkegaard has late in his career that's called The Mirror of the Word. Mm. And it's really an essay about how, how does it mean, what does it mean to read the Bible to, for the right reasons, not as mm. a scholarly thing, because you're paid to do that as a professor. But what does it mean to read the, the scriptures uh, as a mirror so that you can learn who you are and, and what you should be? And he does use this analogy. He says, imagine someone who's deeply in love and um, they are separated from their lover. 
and the lover sends, uh, let's say, imagine he's the guy, and he gets a letter from his the woman he's in love with, uh, but she speaks a foreign language, so she writes this letter in a foreign language. He doesn't speak that language. Yeah. So he has to sit down and get a grammar book and get a, a dictionary, and he toils and toils at translating that. And somebody can come in and say, are you reading your lover's letter? And he says, no, no, I'm not reading the letter now. I'm just working. I'm doing all this confounded work. It's what I yeah. have to do in order to, to read the letter. But when I finally get the translation, I'm going to lock the door. I'm going to go, I'll be alone. And I'm going to read this letter and I'm going to pour on every word. And if there's a request, if I think she's asking me to do something, I'm going to do it. Hmm. I'm not I'm not going to uh, spend a lot of time exegeting the request. <laughs> If I understand it, I'm going to do it right away. And and Kierkegaard thinks that's the way uh, Christians should read the Bible, as if God has sent them a love letter. Now, it's true. We have to have commentaries. We have to have people who can translate. The Bible was not written in English or Swedish or, you know, these other. But that's all just preliminaries uh, to reading the Word of God as the Word of God. And when you read the Word of God, Suppose you find something you don't understand. Okay, don't worry about that. Kierkegaard would say, what about the part you do understand? <laughs> Are you living in accordance with that? <laughs> yeah. It, uh, w when it says, uh, you know, uh, I should be willing to love my enemies. Uh, is that hard to understand? <laughs> yeah. What part What part of the enemy don't I understand? You know, uh, so uh, he thinks that's really, really important. Uh and that he thinks that we can, at times, use scholarship as a kind of defense mechanism. Mm. Instead of hearing God speak to us and responding to what God wants us to do, we say, oh my gosh, this is so difficult to understand. I need to read 10 commentaries, and there are all these different opinions. Who knows what the right thing, the interpretation is? And and Kierkegaard just wants to cut through cut through all that and say, okay, we'll leave that part aside if you don't understand it. Focus on what you do understand. And he thinks there's plenty there for all of us. Uh, the problem is not that it's so hard for us to understand. It's so hard for us to do it. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. In accordance with it. Uh, so that's a, that's a, that's an interesting and important uh, part of his later writings that I like a lot. And I think this is true for both scripture and philosophy. I think it's true for life. Um, and one of the reasons I've always found him personally very challenging is that there's a fundamental difference between reading um, so that you can please the your your lover or so that you can defend yourself to your lover. Yeah. And, and so and, the difference, uh, sorry, if I could just, the, the difference in this seems to be, you know, like uh, if I read this and they ask me to do something, if I, all I'm concerned about is the defense and my own comfort I'm going to find the interpretation that allows me to just be what's most comfortable versus what actually satisfies what my lover has asked of me. Yeah, exactly. And that's a fundamental and important difference. And that's how we should read just about everything in life, right? We, we need to find what is right, not what is not what allows me to live the life that I want to live. Exactly. And, and there, there are many interpretations of that sort. I mean, take, take when Jesus says, uh, you know, uh, he has the parable of the, the sheep and the goats, and he says, you mm -hmm. know, you, you will divide them up. And if you welcomed uh, someone, a, you know, a poor person, you were welcoming me. Uh, and I've read commentaries that say, oh, here uh, the Bible is talking about the willingness of nations to welcome the Israelites who were Jesus' brothers. <laughs> well, that lets me off the hook. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't. Wow, that is so convenient. And I think that's often the very suspicious phrase I find myself saying when I hear a lot of stuff like that, a lot of interpretations of philosophy and stuff like that. It's like, wow, isn't that convenient that it leaves you not accountable? Yeah. Yeah. And and sometimes the interpretations make uh, make the scriptures into nonsense. Uh, mm. You know, there's a passage in the New Testament where Jesus says, uh, if you want to be my follower, you must be willing to hate your own father and mother. We, I don't hear many sermons on that, by the way. 
<laughs> and not uh, a not a people are not a fan. Yeah, yeah, that that's not a good one for Mother's Day or Father's Day. <laughs> <laughs> a good text, and and one can see, of course, nobody thinks that Jesus thinks that we literally should hate our parents, but what does he mean? Well, some exegetes and Kierkegaard comments on this say, well, he just means that we should sort of be indifferent to our parents, <laughs> not really hate them. <laughs> but that seems terrible. You know, yeah. if I really don't care at all about my parents, then then loving God more than my parents would mean nothing. <laughs> so uh, that, that would be a, a very poor kind of thing. And I, what I think is really going on in the passage is Jesus is saying, you may have a situation where your parents demand something of you, Hmm. which would require you to be unfaithful to me. And if you were faithful to me in that situation, your parents may see you as not loving them. They may see, perceive you as hating them, even though Hmm. you don't hate them, you love them. Uh, And, but, but that's the test. Uh, Right. But, but that notice in that situation, if you don't really love your parents, then give sacrificing that would mean nothing. You'd you'd be happy to blow them off, right? You're indifferent to them. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there is know, no sacrifice. Many, many examples uh, of that sort of thing, but Kierkegaard, yeah. uh, Kierkegaard thinks that it's really uh, vital that we uh, try to read in a way that is edifying for us, that that builds us up. That uh, uh, he's not alone here, of course. Augustine says the. The, the best hermeneutical principle is if you read a passage in such a way that it increases your charity, that then you're reading it well. Uh, mm-hmm. You're interpreting it well. Uh, if you interpret it in such a way that it allows you to be indifferent to your neighbor, you're not interpreting it well. Which is a great place to start. Yeah. Uh, and that that's why he has uh, been a, a blessing to Christianity for so long is, is wisdom like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to be um, respectful of your time, but uh, one last question before we kind of just hit uh, like a summary and wrap up. Does Kierkegaard's focus on the individual need a correction or a corrective? And if so, what would that corrective be? Well, I think he has he has this view that God, God is sort of like a, a patient educator who takes us where we are and, and moves us further. And so he thinks that when we're at the beginning of our spiritual journey, if we if we saw or understood what was going to eventually be required of us, we would not be able to do it. We we would we would turn away. We'd be dismayed. We'd we'd despair. We'd give up. And so he thinks that, uh, like like a good educator, God sort of gives us the task in little bits, just mm. as much as we can handle at the time. But always pushing us onward and and uh, and and further, uh, as in as in the, as in the last battle of, of the Narnia books, uh, onward and higher. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. But but still, uh, so a corrective is sort of like, okay, uh, but you haven't made it yet. Here, <laughs> you have you have a ways to go. The the goalposts are are being <laughs> are being uh, stretched, uh, and and we have to sort of be patient with ourselves and understand mm. uh, God's. Uh, ultimately, Kierkegaard would say, and this is really an important part of his whole view, that the Christian life has a kind of duplexity. It has a kind of doubleness mm. in that on the one hand, God demands everything of us and from us, but on the other hand, he gives us everything. And so, I call it the the dialectic of uh, uh, following and great. Kierkegaard talks about we have to be disciples, we have to be followers. Hmm. But when we follow Christ, when we take him as our model, we inevitably fail. Uh, We can't measure up. And so then we need Christ as the Redeemer, as the one who atones for our sins. We have to realize that when we've done everything we can do, it's all grace. Hmm. We don't earn anything. Right. And all of our striving is just gratitude, an expression of gratitude for God's incredible grace. Hmm. So uh, if you if you have just one side of that, if you have just the grace without the striving, 
then you have an indulgent kind of bourgeois religiosity. Mm. But if you have just the striving without the grace, without the forgiveness, then you have a kind of inhuman uh, religiosity or even an anti-human. And there are people who accuse Kierkegaard of being an anti-humanist. I think that's completely wrong. I think he is a, I think he is a kind of Christian humanist, but I think he does think that our sense of what it is to be a full human being has to be educated. We have to, we have to learn from God what, what it would be, what, what it is. Uh, so, so those are yeah. two, two things that I would, uh, that I would say are very, very deep and important in Kierkegaard. And uh, both strands are there until the very end. And then I think he right. goes off the deep end. Right. Which, I mean, when you look at failing health and failing uh, finances, those are never a full excuse, but they are the, they and are well, considerations. Being Just look at the pandemic. Being lonely and is a, is a terrible thing for people's mental health. Yeah, no, th- this is very true. And yes. Kierkegaard is all, you know, people have this stereotype of him as the, the, the melancholy Dane, you know, the, right, right. the gloomy, uh, but actually his contemporaries, if you, if you read the, what they said about him, they, they said he was very funny, wonderful conversationalist. And he loved for most of his life, he loved to be around people. In fact, his recreation was taking what he called a people bath. He would go <laughs> out on the street and walk sometimes for hours Stopping to talk with almost anyone he saw, including poor people, people yeah. who weren't educated, uh, and engaging people in conversation. Uh, he actually took flack for this. People called him a, quote, class traitor because he mm. was hobnobbing with poor people, not educated rich people like he himself was until he spent all his money. <laughs> yeah. went, went through it. But uh, but but for most of his life, he, w- he was a person who really... Uh, Loved being with people. Uh, I think he did have trouble making close friends and having mm. close friends. But he lo- he loved having, and he was a he was a wonderful uncle to his nephews and nieces. But uh, at the very end of his life, I think uh, his loneliness, his isolation, his uh, ill health, and the pain that he was suffering did it. It sort of got to him. Uh, Mm. And he uh, he loses some of his uh, he says things in the last year of his life that I know he would never have said eight, seven years before that, five years before that. It definitely seems completely uh, antithetical to everything he had written beforehand. I mean, you talk about um, his valorization of the the apostles followed by his in some ways like condemnation of the apostles in in those last few years of his life which is just odd (laughs) early on he has this wonderful book uh, called the the essay but the difference between a genius and an apostle right where he says look if if you think someone's an apostle you should believe what they say because they say it because they're speaking Mm. for god you don't believe Paul because you think Paul is really smart or that he was well-educated. You believe him because you think he was an apostle and you listen mm. to him. So he has this very high view of uh, apostolic authority. But at the very end of his life, he's commenting on the book of Acts. And uh, when Peter preaches and they says that 3,000 people were added to the church, right. he says, oh my gosh, he was letting down the, the standards already. 3,000, that's way too many. They couldn't. <laughs> it's, such a, yeah, it's such a strange thing to see. And I think it's a warning to all of us that um, about perseverance, yeah. um, even in the face of very difficult things. Um, I, I do take comfort that even on his deathbed, uh, one of his childhood friends was a, a priest uh, mm-hmm. uh, and his, who came to visit him. And, and he asked Kierkegaard, he said, sorry. And he said, look, what, what what's your what's your hope? You know, what do you hope? Uh, you still hope and trust in Jesus. And he says, unquestionably, you know, my, my life and my, my soul and my, everything is, is centered on my trust that Jesus has redeemed me. And that's, Mm. that's the heart of it all. So I don't think he ever lost the heart of his faith. He just had, I think, a, a, a poor understanding of some of the implications Mm. at at the very end, but he never, he never lost the core of his, uh, of his faith. Uh, yeah, uh, there's some very unfortunate things that happened. You know, he and his brother didn't get along at all. Mm. And uh, when you read what Kierkegaard says about love in works, his book, great book, Works of Love, mm. and then read how 
really how mean he was to his brother on his deathbed. He wouldn't allow his brother to come see him. Mm. Now, granted, he had grounds for being angry with his brother. His brother had publicly written an essay saying, my brother is crazy and we should all put him in an asylum for his own good. (laughs) That would be the kind of thing that would create some estrangement. Yes, that makes sense. So you can see why, why he was angry with his brother, but, uh, but he let the anger get to him. And mm. he should have been willing to to forgive his brother and, and let his brother come and see him. It was a, it was a, it was not a good thing to do. Uh, it wasn't a loving thing to do. Uh, mm. So uh, it's painful to see. But of course, he wasn't a perfect person. None of us are. Right. <laughs> right. And I think that's a very important uh, lesson from this as well. Right. Um, uh, and yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's. Uh, uh, both an encouragement and, and a warning about arrogance and about humility. Um, but yeah. just as we wrap up here, if there was one thing that you could leave with our listeners today uh, from your book here, if there was one lesson or one uh, thought that you could leave with our listeners, what would it be? Well, here's one just sort of thing, uh, you know, a correction uh, of the popular image of Kierkegaard. I go around and I talk about Kierkegaard a lot. And, and I, even when I talk with philosophers who should know better, everybody <laughs> thinks, oh, they know what Kierkegaard's views are. And one of the things everybody knows is Kierkegaard thinks uh, the only way you can believe in God is to take an irrational, blind leap of faith. A belief in God is a sort of irrational, blind leap. Uh, Camus says that, and Sartre thinks that, and lots of people think that, and it's sort of part of the common lore. But actually, that's completely false. Mm. Kierkegaard thinks that uh, it doesn't take a leap to believe in God. He thinks it only takes moral seriousness and a kind of willingness to think hard about your own life. Uh, Mm. uh, He doesn't think, in fact, that you need any proof of God. He thinks the whole idea of proving God's existence is a huge mistake because... uh, Really, uh, God's reality should be out. If we if we don't know there's a God, it shows there's something wrong with us. <laughs> mm. There's a deficiency in our lives. Uh, he's sort of hard nosed about this. He actually says in one place, "There's never been an atheist; just people who are unwilling to allow what they know gain power over their lives." <laughs> Which is him in many ways appropriating Romans one, right? Yeah, he's From sort Paul. of saying yeah. that in, in a deep level. At some level, we all know that there's a God. Uh, so that's partly why he rejects the idea of proving God's existence. Why Why mm. should you prove something that you already know? So that's one thing. I would just correct that picture. Now, he does say that faith in Christ requires a leap. That's because Christ calls and demands us to believe something that we would never have figured out on our own, that God became a human being. <laughs> mm, right. And, and secondly, uh, ask us to live in a way that human common sense can't understand and thinks is crazy because we basically follow what the economists call rational choice theory. Mm. <laughs> we're all, we're all egoists, right? We think uh, it's a matter of figuring out how to successfully get what I want. Uh, but Kierkegaard thinks that what Christianity demands is a willingness to sacrifice, to spend oneself, to, uh, to die to self. And that doesn't seem rational at all to rational choice mm. theory. <laughs> right, right. So when Kierkegaard talks about Christianity as absurd or as an offense to reason, mm. he doesn't mean that it's irrational in the sense that it's contrary to facts that we all know to be true or that it's contradictory or anything like that. He means that uh, the route, the road to becoming a Christian is not simply through uh, thinking and reasoning but it's this hard road that we have to travel of the road of becoming a person in the true sense. Uh, and God is there uh, at our hand when we undertake that. That uh, There's some other people who see this, but anyway, I, I try to hmm. spend a lot of time correcting. Uh, it, it's a kind of funny thing. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people think they know something about Kierkegaard and they, and really the popular sort of stories are mostly myths. Uh, yeah. So uh, they, they just they just don't get it right. Uh, I'll tell you one one more myth, and I've sure. heard I've heard this in sermons from pastors, <laughs> <laughs> pastors who who think they've read Kierkegaard and know something about him, and they'll say they're preaching a sermon on doubt, 
and they'll say, you know, some of you may have doubts and you may worry about your doubts. You may, you may feel guilty about your doubts, but really you shouldn't be because Kierkegaard has taught us that doubt is a part of faith and that doubt is a good thing. <laughs> and actually that is not true. <laughs> Kierkegaard does not say that doubt is a good thing. Yeah. He says faith and doubt are opposite passions. Mm. And what is true, and I think this is where the confusion comes, Kierkegaard thinks we're all finite, fallible human beings. And uncertainty is a part of the human cognitive condition. Hmm. We're often uncertain. And faith and doubt turn out to be responses to uncertainty. Faith hmm. is a commitment and doubt is a refusal of a commitment. So uh, don't, don't think that Kierkegaard thinks that doubt is a part of faith. Uh, faith is a way of conquering doubt. Uh, it's a way of resolving a dealing with uncertainty. Mm. So um, anyway, I think those yep. are important things to to know about, about Kierkegaard. He has a lot to say about those Absolutely. things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you. And that's a, a wonderful way, I think, to, to sum this up. Um, Dr. Uh, C. Stephen Evans, thank you so much for coming on. To our listeners, if you uh, appreciate the depth of conversation or learn something new, please like, share, and subscribe so someone else can too. Um, but uh, just again, thank you so much. And uh, it was a real pleasure having you on. Well, thank you for having me. And I hope a lot of your listeners will pick up Kierkegaard and spirituality and and uh, and read more about Kierkegaard. I think my book would actually be a good introduction to Kierkegaard, although I have another book that's called I would Kierkegaard agree. An Introduction. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> we'll link that one too. They can make their choice, but yeah. uh, well, really okay. appreciate well, it. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. I've enjoyed it. 